welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. This is Andrea Buffa, and today we're talking to Prevention Institute's Deputy Executive Director, Manal Abolata. She just visited Medellin, Colombia to learn about their innovative improvements to the city's infrastructure. And she's going to tell us about how this city that was not very long ago called one of the most dangerous cities on earth has transformed itself through public health investments. And we're also going to learn about what we in the United States can learn from its example. Welcome, Anal. Thank you. So before we go down the road of talking about Colombia, I want to ask you a little bit about how you became interested in land use decisions and how they affect health. Well, I've had a long interest in how the physical environment impacts folks' health, what they have access to in their home environment, whether or not they can safely walk in their neighborhood, and also how broader structures in our society influence how the neighborhoods we live in, work in, play in, provide opportunities for health, or conversely, um, make people more likely to be sick and injured. And my interest in land use came after I had been thinking about the role of the physical environment. And I started to dig into that and realize that there was this whole invisible structure called the land use system, which really had a significant impact on how decisions were made about the buildings that we have or don't have in the built environment, whether or not industries clean or polluting could be located in certain communities or not. And that started my interest in really looking at the land use system that shapes planning, zoning, and all these invisible sort of decisions that happen before anything is ever put into the ground. You recently traveled to Medellin, Colombia, to learn about what they've done to build healthier neighborhoods. So why Medellin? Well, Medellin was actually a real surprise for me as well. As I started this year, I was uh, fortunate enough to receive a fellowship from the Durfee Foundation. It's called the Stanton Fellowship. And my project with that fellowship was really to be curious about how infrastructure investments, so dollars coming in to support improvements in the built environment, could be invested strategically to improve health, safety, and well-being. And so as I was on that learning journey, which is what I'm calling it, I was doing quite a bit of reading and doing interviews and talking to people. And one day, by happenstance, one of the women in my fellowship cohort, she happens to be from Medellin, and she said, have you considered going to Medellin. They have, a couple years ago, built these things called the Metro Cables, and it's really cool because they're like gondolas that you would see maybe in your mind's eye in Lake Tahoe or the Swiss Alps or something like that if you've ever been there. But actually, they are in Medellin, and they're connecting people from the main sort of spine of their 
public transportation system, their metro, and strategically placed in some of the most low-income neighborhoods, or comunas, as they call them, of Medellin. And she told me a little bit about the process. And so that started me being very intrigued about Medellin. And as I started looking things up on the Internet, I found a bunch of really cool articles on City Lab that were talking about how Medellin has um, – over many years, sort of began the process of transforming itself through a number of different kinds of investments in the built environment, but not just in the physical environment, but also in the people, and in particular, the ability of people to participate in decisions and systems about where and what would get built in their communities. Medellin was one of the places that I discovered as I was considering lots of other places that weren't just sort of talking about how the built environment shapes people's health and well-being, but we're really articulating the importance of investing where those resources are needed most. And that really struck me and stood apart when I started looking at the work of how built environment links with health and well-being. There was so much more, many more examples of investments and innovations in more affluent, more white communities, and much fewer examples of where work had intentionally been done to enhance the built environment and the physical structures of a neighborhood to benefit the people who lived in, were living in the, um, a specific community. So that was exciting to me. It sounds incredible, and I've been looking at a lot of the photos that you took. So describe to our listeners, what are some of the things you saw when you got there? You talked about the gondolas, but I know there's a lot of other interesting work going on, too. I was so blown away by the city when I got there. First of all, Medellin and every picture I took has huge skies in it. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if there's places that have bigger skies than mm-hmm. others, but this one, <laughs> this city had big, beautiful skyscapes and fluffy white clouds. It's called the City of Eternal Spring, and certainly while I was there, I felt like we were greeted by beautiful, balmy weather and every once in a while, tropical downpours in the late afternoon that would kind of just cool and freshen up the city. And then a lot of vibrant colors. The homes were painted in many different colors. Medellin is in the Andes Mountains, and so you'll see high mountains kind of coming up on both sides. They kind of, you would describe it as a bowl, maybe, with the Medellin River running through the middle of the bowl, and then homes and buildings and other infrastructure coming up from the side. It's really sort of tremendous and eye-catching to see houses densely, densely built up in some neighborhoods, kind of, they look like they're stacked on top of one another in the way you might think that like Legos are, but it's beautiful. They each have character and you can see that a family lives here and they're really caring about this place that they live in and they're managing to sort of be in close quarters with one another, but I saw a lot of happiness or alegria. And I also saw interspersed with that a lot of dope open spaces with some greenery. Parts of the hillsides were really still very preserved and free of any kind of building and housing. And then down at the base of the bull, that was where I would say one of the the city center is, where like the main metro and commercial district is. And it had, you know, all the signs of 
a modern city with museums and shopping and real a lot of dynamism in the city. I also read in some of your writings about this that there is a green belt. What is that about? Medellin is a geographically contained city, so they are really bound by the limits of the Andes going up on all sides. So imagine a city that's continuing to grow because of population growth or in-migration. They're really experiencing continual growth, and so the Green Belt was to accomplish two, or at least two, maybe more than that, major things. One, I think, was to kind of create a boundary to signal that this is the line beyond which we would like to contain or slow um, the growth of housing and settlements and residents, partly in an effort to conserve green space. And the other role that I think it will have and is having is provision of green space in neighborhoods that have historically had less access to open green space. And what I didn't see firsthand, but I read about in one of those City Lab articles, was also using parts of the green belt to create opportunities for people to engage in growing healthy food or, you know, produce. And also in the creation and formation of the Green Belt, one of the stories that I shared with you was also creating opportunities for local folks to work. And so they told the story of a man who had previously been involved in violence and narco trafficking, who was able to give up that life and then be involved on the construction of the Green Belt. And so I think... um, characteristic of some of the things that I really saw firsthand in Medellin. They really seem to tie a bunch of different pieces together to create these good solutions that address multiple neighborhood concerns and um, needs for new opportunities. I know you also do work in Los Angeles around parks and green spaces, and they benefit people's health and well-being in addition to creating these economic opportunities. Yeah, that's right. I think that was really exciting to me about Medellin in the sense that one, you know, as I said, Medellin is super dense and it's much smaller than LA. I think it's two and a half million people. But in some of the places that I went, for example, one evening I went with two um, colleagues up one of these metro cables and we went into one of the, from the city center up this huge gondola. So we're looking way above, down on to the rooftops of these houses, and we get to a metro cable station high up in the mountain, and we get dropped off there into a little, what we would consider a little transit stop, and amazingly, they had created it into what we might call here a little pocket park, and so there were probably about eight little kids playing soccer. There were lovers smooching on the edge of the railing, looking over at the city lights that were starting to sparkle. There was a couple little kids riding their bikes. And for us, we would think of it as a little postage stamp of a park, but it was so clear by the way that the community members were using it that they were caring for this place, appreciative of this place, occupying the space with the little play structures and just using every small inch of it because I think it was really a valued part of their neighborhood. I saw a lot of escalators in your photos. 
<laughs> yeah, the escalators were such a cool surprise. So I had also read about them. So I, I was intentionally going to see the escalators. And one of the best examples of the escalators um, for me was on a tour we went to of a neighborhood called or a district called Comuna 13, so District 13. And we went on this fantastic tour with our tour guide named Max. And Max was trained really as a docent to take us from one of the metro stations up into Comuna 13. Comuna 13 has a very important and significant story that really exemplifies some of the both political violence and narco-trafficking issues that really Medellin has struggled with in its history and really, to some extent, continues to struggle with both in terms of legacy and present day. But anyway, as we went on that tour, um, we climbed. <laughs> After we got off the bus, we hot-footed it up a pretty steep hill, which one just is such a testimony to the people of Medellin who are able to move around on foot. They have to be in such good condition to walk up all these steep hills and staircases. But as we climbed and climbed, we eventually um, got to a place where there was these escalators, just like you might see, I don't know, in a shopping mall here in the States, nestled into a steep hillside. And there were about, I don't know what the right number is. I want to say 11, but it's probably more levels of escalators flanked on either side by staircases. And when we asked about that, what we learned from him was that the community Community members had been really sort of engaged in and participating in a process to describe that getting access to the business center, to commerce, to economic opportunity would be like a two-hour commute on foot or, you know, for those who had a car, a very complicated journey on foot, sometimes on paved footpaths, sometimes on just dirt trodden pathways to get down to places where they could do business, get to school, etc. So as they communicated their priorities, they identified that um, this was an issue, but ultimately the transportation agency heard these priorities. And I think they really started to work together to identify what a possible solution was given the unique geography and topography of Medellin. And one person, I forget who it was, was telling me that as they started to hone in on the escalators, they actually were um, taking delegations of residents from Comuna Trece to the local mall to experience these escalators inside a modern mall that was in the city center of Medellin and explain to them and I think probably get them accustomed to the idea of this technology being used. And so obviously an escalator is not a high-tech thing, but I think what's really innovative is the use of the escalator for everyday transportation. And so you'll see people not just trying to get to shops in a mall, but moving from a higher part of the neighborhood to a lower level, getting to some of the local businesses there. And what I learned as I was talking to folks and reading in articles was that this has really just cut people's commute times a lot. And then what's been, I think, fascinating is how it, along, I think, with other investments, have really become a source of pride for the community, like these are our escalators, and also been, I think, 
a starting point for tourism. And so folks come and want to see the escalators, but they also get to engage with one of these local tour guides who's a resident who gets sort of an economic benefit from this tourism. And then we also got for Max a tour of amazing beautiful murals and public art, which really depicted in very vibrant and unique sort of narratives, the stories of hope, transformation, and for them in Comuna Trece, a very important aspect of hip-hop culture that was really a sense of pride and a sense of identity for this district. It's really fascinating where you're talking about the role that the community members played in identifying the problems that they wanted to have solved in the community and also coming up with solutions. And I'm wondering if that is baked into the process of the land use decisions in Medellin. As I understand it, there are a lot of intentional things baked in that are really designed to be very serious about public participation in determining investments in the built environment, but also in other kinds of investments. And I really feel like this is a complex and deep story and history that I'm still trying to really understand. But what I've gathered so far is that there are, one, I think, in response to um, an experience that the people and the government were recognizing that political violence and narco-trafficking and consolidation of power and corruption were having in terms of excluding folks, the local government really wanted um, to make a pretty deep departure from that and engage with a lot of different local folks. And one of the things that became, I think, really important was these concepts of public trust, accountability, and transparency. And out of that, I believe that a number of different processes and mechanisms and policies were developed and implemented that were really designed to enhance participatory democracy, civic participation, and really sort of elevate this idea of citizenship and citizen participation and that part of what it means to be a citizen of Medellin is the ability to participate and influence, but also the respect to see the results of that participation. I'm seeing that as I'm sort of digging in and learning, there are clauses in the Constitution that talk specifically about participation, and there are many different interventions and tools that have been used. I had the opportunity to talk to someone that was a former head of the public utility, and one of the things that he spoke very clearly of was how he believed that the public trust is sacred, and part of that was really creating committees, I don't know if that's the exact word that he used, but really that would meaningfully enlist the most impacted residents of different districts or communities to help in shaping programs, identifying and elevating priorities, and then to in turn guide investments that would then the public utility and the local government took very seriously producing data and metrics to demonstrate 
this is what we've done, this is what we've accomplished, this is how we've responded. What I think struck me was it wasn't one agency that felt like it was their job to do public participation and not another, but that whether it was the transportation folks or the former regional planner that I spoke to that worked on the planning around the Medellin River or whether it was the person from the public utility who was the provider of water and power for Medellin, all of them spoke about creating spaces for public participation, public discourse, being able to engage with the tensions that would normally naturally come up when you talk to residents about their different needs and perspectives. And there was just a level of fluency and comfort around this idea of public participation being messy but worth it. I know that a lot of listeners are going to be wondering, how are they funding this awesome work? Again, I want to just say, I was a visitor and I got, <laughs> a, you know, a very small piece of the puzzle. I think there's a couple answers probably to, to this question. So one story that a woman that I met, Maria Clara Echeverria, who was the director of the School of Habitat at a university there, shared with me was that early on, I want to say probably more than a decade ago, she, from her seat at the university, was engaging through, I believe, probably some grant funding in a process which they, they call, like, I think she called them like their three local experiences, where she and her colleagues worked with folks in the communas to really do sort of deep engagement and participatory processes um, to have the community actually do walks with them and tell them what their needs were, what their priorities were. So that's one example, that there was sort of academia in many different instances has been very committed to facilitating public participation and using their power from the academic setting to elevate priorities, amplify the community's articulations to institutional actors in agencies. I think some of those people ended up coming into local government in official agency positions, and I think it, through that, used the power of their institutions to engage in. And what I don't know and would be worth me looking into is really, is this something that's baked into their local government budgets? One thing that I did learn in terms of funding that was really stunning to me is, remember how I just mentioned this local public utility? It is one example that I think is really fascinating where the local, this public utility, Empresas Pública de Medellín, by statute, I believe, takes 30% of its profits each year and invests them back into the local municipality to basically support social innovations. And so, for example, if the mayor of Medellin has identified something like increasing access to educational facilities for the low-income residents or what they call Los Strata Comunas of Medellin, then the 30% from the public utility 
can be directed towards that initiative or that priority. And so it seemed really clear to me that this was like an important partnership and important source of revenue for advancing social aims. And I think woven into all of that is a real commitment to participation. How do you think your experience in Medellin is going to inform your work moving forward and how might it inform the work of others in the the fields of public health and health equity? I'm a real believer now in the idea of getting out of our day-to-day environment and going to see how other cities, other places have approached the challenges that they faced. I think it's a real source of inspiration. And even if you can't take one group's or one city solution and plop it down where you are, I think that I really just saw this is a city that has taken its unique history, its unique context, its unique geography, its assets, its limitations, and figured out a way forward grounded in some principles of social equity and really that I think so much of what they accomplished was grounded in almost like a social compact or a norm that we can invest and support our least advantaged residents, and that's to the good of all of us. And so there was sort of a sense for me of shared destiny. So that was very inspiring for me. I think it's one of the things that I've also come back from specifically in terms of Los Angeles is that I think we can do so much more to anchor the practices of participatory democracy and community participation in our agencies. And I also came back with the real understanding that we could also gain a lot by becoming much more unsiloed. I feel like before I went to Medellin, I understood the importance of multi-sector, multi-issue, sort of multi-cross-agency collaboration, meaning the transportation system needs to work with the Parks Department needs to work with the people providing energy and so on. But what I felt from being there is that strong progressive leadership had an incredibly important role in galvanizing and encouraging people to work across issues to find sort of solutions and pathways forward that really resonated with community residents who we know experience all aspects of their community all at once and not separately. So those were really inspiring. I mean, I think another takeaway for me is that we don't need exact cookie cutters, but we do, um, I think, need to constantly become inspired by what's going on in other places. And then on a really practical level, I feel like I would love the opportunity to take a small group of people back to a place like Medellin to learn together, because I feel like I came back inspired. If a group of us or groups of us come back inspired, we can be working together toward maybe a shared vision or working from a shared sense of inspiration. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, Manal. It's time for us to wrap up. Is there anything you want to add before we say goodbye to our listeners? 
Yeah, I really encourage everyone to make a trip to Medellin. It's a wonderful city. And if you do decide to go, there's an amazing place called Club Havana, which has amazing salsa dancing. So in addition to having a very inspiring and intellectual trip, there's great music and great dancing in Medellin. So I look forward to going again and encourage folks to check it out. And that is definitely also good for your health and well-being. Also, I'd like to thank Dr. Monica Guerra, the Durfee Foundation, and my colleagues at Prevention Institute for all of their support during this learning journey. Thanks for being a guest today, Manal. Thank you. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T. 